0: Good morning, brethren and sisters. Well, today we go through a transition, a transition from the ideals to reality, the reality of human experience. We've seen the ideals in Numbers chapter 6, brethren and sisters. We know what Yahweh intended in the vow of the Nazarite, the separation of the head from the body, and its inclinations towards (laughs) that which is evil. We've seen all that, but now we are going to see it revealed in the life of a man. A man with whom we can all identify. I don't need to tell you anything about the story of Samson, and I'm not going to tell you the story about Samson. I'm just going to dig a little deeper beneath the surface of that story and to see what the true essence of it is. We're all familiar, I think, with what happened. Israel goes through its sixth major apostasy in verse 1 of chapter 13 of Judges, doing evil again in the sight of Yahweh who delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And he raised up, as he often did, a deliverer for them, but in a most peculiar way. Just a little bit of background first of all. We know, don't we, that Dan was the largest tribe in terms of numbers. They were given a portion of land that you can see there encircled in the red. But they were unable to secure their inheritance. And 600 of them migrated north to capture Laish. And they made that their new home and established there an apostasy while the rest of them were forced onto the heights between Zora and Eshdaol by the activity go back, by the activity of Amorites and Philistines. And so the Amorites and the Philistines pushed the Danites to the heights of this mountain range that ran north-south. Now you may be able to see Eshdaol which is, if I can get this thing to work, there, and Zorah down there. Now, the reason I'm spending a little bit of time on this is that these two places play a vital part in the story of Samson's life, Zorah and And We want to explore today how that is. When you look from the south, northwards along that range of, of hills, you see the hill of Zorah. This was the home of Samson. It is probably not unlike it was in the days when he lived there. They had been forced to the heights of the hills because the Philistines were down here in the valleys. And so Samson spent his life looking down the valley of Sorek, westwards towards the Philistine lands. And he was to journey down that way, as we well know, and to make many mistakes in the process. And make a disaster of his life. From which God was finally to redeem him. We are familiar with all that, aren't we? But have we noticed, brethren and sisters, did you notice as you read through Judges chapter 13, what God intended by this? This story of Samson? Did you notice the occurrence of the word the woman, and the word wife. When you look at the text in Judges 13, you find this, that the word isha, the word for woman in the Old Testament, occurs 14 times in Judges chapter 13. Fourteen times. Fourteen times. And there's a consistency here which we don't always get in the, in the translation. Isha, with no article, occurs seven times in the chapter and is always translated wife. And I think it's a valuable exercise and you'll see why it's valuable in a moment to actually go through and to highlight the occurrences of this term. The term the woman and the term wife. So wife is the word Isha without the definite article. But the word Ishgar with the definite article occurs seven times in the chapter and is always translated the woman. Now that's interesting because you see, brethren and sisters, what this is telling us is that God, who doesn't give Samson's mother a name, wanted us to see in her something very special. And what we are going to see in her is that she was the true Nazarite in the family of Samson. Though he was born a Nazarite unto God from the womb, she was the true Nazarite. She was the one who never let God down. There's only one occasion when She went to the land of the Philistines with her son. She never went again. She never went to his wedding. She never compromised her principles ever again. And we're going to see who she represents. Seven, by the way, is the covenant number. And the subject here in Judges chapter 13 is the covenant that God made in the Garden of Eden Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. That's why you see Samson's mother is not given a name. She goes nameless because God wants to see, wants us to see in her his part in the atonement, his part in the redemption of mankind. And what we have in the raising up of Samson was an attempt by God to reveal to Israel the work of his son. Samson was supposed to be a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, he failed, just as you and I would have failed had we been chosen for that task, because there was only ever one who could do that work. Perfect obedience is not possible for any other, and Samson proved that only too well. And if you're like me, you don't find it hard to identify with this man. So here he is, set forth as a type of Christ. But his mother turns out to be the true Nazarite in the story. Now if you think there's nothing in numbers, the fact that we've got this phrase, the woman occurring seven times, and the other other translation of Isha without the article, seven times. You think there's nothing in numbers? Just have a look at this. That word Isha occurs 13 times again in Judges 14 and 15. And it's always in reference to the Philistine girl that Samson married. And 13 is the scriptural number for rebellion. We know that from Genesis 14 verse 4. They served Kitalioma for 12 years and in the 13th, They rebelled. Nimrod was the thirteenth from Adam. And his name means, we will rebel. And Samson was rebelling in the matter of the woman, the Philistine woman. Hence the spirit memorialises that rebellion by the use of Ishar 13 times in chapters 14 and 15. And so, we look, brethren and sisters, at Genesis 3.15. Now, you know this passage as well as I do. You don't even need to turn it up. You can quote it. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and he shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. It's one of the most fundamental passages in the Bible, but might I say, But it's my experience, and we've had a lot of experience on the matters of the Atonement in Australia, I can assure you. In my experience, there is a certain fuzziness about the understanding of Genesis 3.15 in our community. There is a very, very particular purpose in that one verse in the Bible. There are three separate, though related, conflicts In Genesis 3.15. Here's the first one. The serpent versus the woman. Interesting that, isn't it? We know what the serpent represents, the carnal thinking which man adopted and which Adam has passed on to all his posterity, that we are born with, that our natural thinking is amoral, that it's not towards God, it's towards the earth. We know that only too well. But when God came to choose a symbol to represent his thinking, he chose the woman. And we say there are reasons for that, yes. The woman had upheld the divine law when the serpent said, hath God said, she said, this is what God has said. She upheld that law and then she was deceived. Her eyes were closed and she was led into sin. through the the excitement of passion. But God chose the woman to represent his own thinking. So the first conflict was to be one that he would initiate between carnal thinking and spiritual thinking. The second conflict was between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. And this is where it gets a bit fuzzy. You ask someone someone who's been taught for baptism in Australia and sometimes you get the answer, usually you get the answer, well this is, you know, the the serpent seed is uh, those who who think like the serpent and the woman's seed are those who think like God and there's a conflict between them. Well, there's no doubt, Britain and sisters, that that is involved. But that's not what Genesis 3.15 is saying. It's not about us. We come in the picture down the track. This is about the conflict between Christ, the woman's seed, and those who opposed him. Because it next says, He, and in the Hebrew it's masculine, singular. He shall bruise thy head. So we come to the third conflict. And that conflict is between the woman's seed and the serpent not between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed, but between the woman's seed and the serpent. And it's the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2.15. And by the way, if you want a New Testament exposition of Genesis 3.15, you will not do any better than Colossians 2.15. I wish there was time to explore that. Where the Apostle points out that he made a show of them openly, publicly triumphing over them in himself. That's where the battle was fought by the woman's seed against the serpent in himself. The conflict was between those two ways of thinking to which he was related by birth of Mary into the race of Adam and by birth from God having been given thereby a mind, a superior mind, a mind that could be in tune all the time with the things of God and absorb everything his father told him, that he might overcome perfectly the power of the serpent within, which we can't and we don't. And that's why Samson was a failure. But God wanted to set forth these wonderful things in him. And so we come back to the record of Judges 13. And if you go through that chapter, notice this in verse 3. The angel of Yahweh appeared unto the woman and said to her that she was not to partake of wine or strong drink. She was to be a Nazarite because the child that would be born to her would be a Nazarite from the womb. Why did she have to be a Nazarite? Because this is about Genesis 3.15. She represents the mind of God in this transaction. And so, brethren and sisters, we are told at the end of verse 2 that Manoah's wife was barren and bare not. It would have been sufficient to say she was barren, but to say that she bare not, emphasising that fact, tells us that the child to be born was to be born by the power of the Spirit. Just as our Lord Jesus Christ, in fulfilment of Genesis 3.15, was to be born by the power of the Spirit. As it were, man was to be excluded from redeeming himself. It would be God who would bring forth the seed of the woman to redeem mankind. And so, brethren and sisters, it goes on. It says in verse 5, For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. I want you to notice what the angel says. Because the woman adds something to that a little later on. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And the woman, verse 6, came and told her husband and recounts the story. And towards the end of verse 7, she says this, For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. The angel didn't say that. Because you see, brethren and sisters, the angel knew that this typical setting forth of Genesis 3.15 would be a failure because no man apart from Christ himself could be or would be a Nazarite unto God from the day of his birth to the day of his death. She added that. And Manoah entreated Yahweh that the angel might return. God hearkened, verse 9, to the voice of Manoah. But to whom did the angel come? Did he come to Manoah? No. Look at verse 9. And the angel of God came again unto the woman. And verse 10 says, the woman made haste and ran. And Manoah, in verse 11, arose and came after his wife and said to the angel, Art thou the man that spakest unto the woman? Now, if you'd made a couple of phone calls to my wife to tell her something very important. And she had passed the message on to me. And the next phone call that came through, my wife picked it up and she said, hang on, I'll go and get my husband. And I came to the phone and I said to you on the phone, are you the one that rang the woman? You'd be surprised, wouldn't you? When was the last time, Breton, you called your wife the woman? We don't do that, do we? But Manoah says that. He calls her the woman. You see, the Spirit wants to emphasise this fact. She represents the divine mind in this transaction. And so we know what happens. The message is relayed to Manoah and certain things go on. haven't got time for all that. We've got to come down to verse 24. And the woman bare a son and called his name Samson. Brilliant sunlight after the face of the angel that she had seen. And the child grew and Yahweh blessed him. Where have you read those words before? They are redolent, aren't they, of the birth of Christ. The woman bare a son. And the child grew, and Yahweh blessed him. That's where our mind's supposed to be, you see. And the spirit of Yahweh began to move him at times. So, brethren and sisters, we find ourselves now in a very important verse. Because this is about the principles of Nazariteship. In the Hebrew, there is no equivalent in the text for the phrase, at times, in verse 25. To move him at times is the Hebrew word payem. It means to tap, to beat persistently, hence thrust or impel or agitate. And Rotherham translates it, to urge him to and fro. So the spirit of Yahweh comes into the life of this young boy, this man, teenager perhaps. And it begins a process of urging him to and fro. I've been through that. I'm still going through that. When the truth came into my life, brethren and sisters, when I learnt what was right, there was set up in my mind an agitation of spirit against flesh and flesh against spirit. And I was urged to and fro. The spirit would urge me this way and the flesh would fall back this way and the spirit would urge me this way and it would fall back that way. That was Samson's experience. He was impelled to and fro by the intervention of God in his life. Payam occurs five times in the Old Testament. That's not many. It's in Genesis 41 verse 8 and Daniel 2, 1 and 3 where it refers to kings, Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar who were troubled by divinely bestowed dreams, urged to and fro, so to speak. In Psalm 77 verse 4, Asaph is sorely troubled by the activity of God in his life. So you can get the idea of what that word means. But then it says in verse 25 that this was happening in the camp of Dan. Now Dan, we're going to see in a moment, is a very important name in this context. It's the camp of Dan, by the way. It's a temporary abode, a place for probation. And so, brethren, sisters, just like Samson, you and I are in a place of probation. And most of us are being impelled to and fro. Dan, you come back to Genesis chapter 30 and verse 6. Genesis 30 and verse 6 will tell us what the name Dan means. Now, if I was to ask the question, what does Dan mean? Everybody would put their hand up and say, Dan means judgment, right? Hmm. Okay, well, consider this. This is the origin of the name Dan. Rachel, who had given her handmaid to Jacob, says in verse 6 of Genesis 30, God hath judged me and hath also heard my voice and has given me a son, therefore called she his name Dan. Is she saying that God judged her? In the sense of judgment, do we understand that word? What inflection does Rachel put on that name Dan? What's the prominent idea that she has in mind? She's in a contest with her sister, Leah. You know, there's this competition between Leah and Rachel to produce children for Jacob. What she's saying here, brethren and sisters, is that God had chosen her. That's the form of judgment she's talking about. It's about choice. So the connotation of that name is choice. Now think of that in relation to what we have here in Judges 13 verse 25. The Spirit of Yahweh is urging Samson to and fro in this camp of probation... To make choices, he's got to make a choice between flesh or spirit. What's it going to be? Because the spirit urges him this way, and his flesh urges him back that way. What's your choice, Samson? And it says it's between Sora and Eshdale between. Very intense form in the Hebrew. In fact, it is said that there's only two or three occurrences of this intense form. Three, if you include Judges 25. One of them is Genesis 1 verse 4, which says, and if you have the same margin in your Bible as mine, this is what it says. And God saw the light, but it was good. And God divided between the light and between the darkness. That's an unusual way of couching something, isn't it? But what it's telling us is that light and darkness can never meet. One expunges the other. They are total opposites. Mutually exclusive. So when we read in Judges 13.25 that it was between Zorah and between Eshtaol, there's an emphasis in the Hebrew there between these two places. And we need to explore what they mean. Hence, Samson was compelled by the activity of God in his life to make choices between flesh and spirit, we say. How do we arrive at that? Well, let's have a look at Zorah. Zora, which, by the way, back in verse two was the home of Samson's father, means a wasp as stinging, and the word is translated hornet in Exodus twenty-three twenty-eight, Deuteronomy seven twenty, and Joshua twenty-four verse twelve. We have a quick look at Exodus twenty-three. In Exodus twenty-three verse twenty-seven, we read this. I will send my fear before thee, he says, having told him that the angel would lead Israel into the land and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come. And I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee and I will send hornets, there is, there's our word, a wasp as stinging, Zarah the root, scourge, to strike down. I will send hornets before thee which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, etc. from before thee. I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate. By little and little, verse 30, I will drive them out from before thee. That, brethren and sisters, was God's way of telling Israel that they would get their inheritance little by little. They would have to struggle, because they, like you and me, would be urged to and fro between flesh and spirit, and have to make some choices throughout their life, but little by little, they would push the Canaanite out of the land and secure their inheritance. Some people think this is a reference to a pharaoh. Forget it. It's a reference to God's activity through his angels and the power of his word. Judges 13, verse 25, Samson finds himself Urge to and fro between Zora and between Eshdale. What about Eshdale? Eshdale means entreaty, petition or request, according to Jesenius. The root word is Shael, to inquire, to request or to demand. You meet the word, for instance, in Judges 13, verse 6. But I asked him, she says to her husband, The word asked there is shahal. So it's talking about a voice, the use of the voice. And it represents the range of voices of entreaty that were working in Samson's life. And there were a number of them. So what we've got here, brethren and sisters, is a very graphic illustration of what happens in the life of anyone into whose life the truth comes. And we know what it's like, don't we? Here's the natural man. The natural man has an intellect where the thought processes and reasonings of the mind occur. He has propensities, that is, desires in his flesh. The desire to eat, for instance, is a propensity. He's hungry. His stomach rumbles and it tells his brain, I'm hungry. So this propensity gets the brain kicking over. How can I satisfy my hunger? If I'm in a shop and I've got no developed moral capacity, for God has given all men moral capacity, but most don't use it, and it's underdeveloped or ill-developed or twisted. You might say, well, there's a packet of chips in the shop. There's no one looking. (laughs) You know what it's like. That's because, you see, the amoral serpent is in control. That's how man naturally thinks. We know all about that, don't we? And Paul says, before we came to the truth, we fulfilled the desires of the flesh and of the mind. But the truth changes all that, doesn't it? The truth brings about a new situation where the moral capacity is developed and it has an effect upon the way our mind thinks the thinking process is governed by morality put in there by God so when the propensities and other passions of the flesh rise up our brain says that's carnal thus it is written crucified. That's how it works. That's what we call a conscience. I haven't got time to go into that, but Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 16 is an excellent exposition of conscience, a sunny dasis, as you can see down there. A sunny dasis, a knowing with oneself, one's own witness. There's another voice in the in the head isn't there there's a natural voice all the time but there's another voice there that God's put there thus it is written and so we are able to some degree to overcome that's what was going on in the life of Samson there was this oscillation between flesh and spirit the flesh never gives up it's always bringing up as it were passions and desires and the mind naturally wants to feed them. And Samson found that, brethren and sisters. You have a look at Judges chapter 14. Because you see, this oscillation in Samson's life is quite graphic. I'm just going to have a look at two of these. You might want to list these and have a look at them in your own time. In my Bible, I have different colours for each of these things. The activity of Eshteol, the voices that worked in Samson's life, and which brought him undone, and the activity of the Spirit, Zorah. Give a look at it. Judges 14. We know what he did. He went down to the land of the Philistines in verses 1 and 2. Came back home and said to his mum and dad, I want to marry a Philistine girl. And they said to him, Son, you're a Christadelphian. Christadelphians don't marry outside the truth. You know that. You've been taught that from childhood. What are you doing, boy? Come on. Please. But he wouldn't listen. Why wouldn't he listen? What voices were at work, apart from those of his parents? Well, we are told that in verse 2. He says, Now therefore get her for me to wife at the end of the verse. Then his father and his mother said, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren, among all thy people that thou goest to marry an uncircumcised Philistine? And Samson said unto his father, Get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. There was a strong passion working within the man. The voice of the serpent was much louder than the voice of the spirit. He was being motivated by carnal desires. The beauty of a Philistine girl. But what happens? Verse 5. Then went Samson down and his father and his mother to Timnath and came to the vineyards of Timnath and behold a young lion roared against him and the spirit of Yahweh came mightily upon him and he rent him as he would have rent a kid and had nothing in his hand. But he told not his father or mother which was a disaster. How can you rend a lion into pieces? You see, the voice of carnality was speaking to him in verses 2 and 3. But then the spirit gets involved and he strikes down the lion, who, by the way, was typical of the Philistine girl that he wanted to marry. She would have torn him to shreds, and she nearly did. See the oscillation? Turn the page. Verse 15. You know the story as well as I do. 15 to 18, he tells a riddle. His wife lays all over him, day after day after day, appealing to him. Her voice is there. Samson, if you love me, you will tell me the secret. Please, Samson. And she uses all the wiles of the woman. And the voice is constant. Samson, come my way. Come here. Tell me. you ever heard that voice before? And he gives in to it until verse 19. And the spirit of Yahweh came upon him and he went down to Ashkelon, killed 30 Philistines and brought their garments and went away in the heat of his anger. You've got Eshtaol in verses 15 to 18. You've got Zorah in verses 19 and 20. And it goes on like that, brethren and sisters. I haven't got time to go through all these. Chapter 15, you'll see the contrasts. They're all there. We've got to come now very quickly to the story of chapter 16 and Delilah. He goes down to the valley of Sorek. That's what he would have seen as he looked down from the hill of Zora. From the valley of Sorek and he went down there and Eshteol and Zora happened all over again Sorek means a vine from the root redness a vine stock producing purple grapes for the best wine he's a Nazarite he's going to the very home of the vine And he meets Delilah. Her name means languishing, to, to slacken, to be feeble. You get, I get a picture in my mind of this woman, just sort of, you know, a beautiful woman, but just so languid. Come in, Samson. You'll love my house. And after a while, Samson is. Yeah, okay. You see it, can't you? I don't know about you, brethren Sister. When I read the Bible, I try and create pictures. I try and put myself there. In this story, I'd like to stay out of it. Because I know what would happen if it was me. And we know what happens, don't we? Verse 16. She pressed him daily with her words, as as at work, entreaty, all the time. Trying to find out his secret. Why is he so strong? Why can't she capture him? She urged him, says Rotherham, with her words continually. This idea of this word pressed is to compress and hence to oppress, to distress. And all of those things have their part in Samson's experience here. She urged him, it says, and his soul was vexed unto death. So he makes the choice of Adam in the garden. He makes a choice for death. Why would you do that? Adam did it for the same reason. The voice of a woman now imbued with carnality. What a shocking story that is. But how how typical it is of human nature. Eshtayol has prevailed, brethren and sisters, hasn't it, in the life of Samson? But it doesn't remain that way. We read that in verse 22, locked up in the Philistine prison, his hair began to grow again after he was shaven. When a Nazarite completed his vow, his hair was shaven off. Samson had failed his vow of Nazarite ship. His hair was shaven off. He had to make a new start. He had to go back to tours and begin all over again. His hair began to grow. I wish sometimes my hair would grow, but <laughs> his hair began to grow. And it was the mark of the separation of his head unto Yahweh. But you see, it wasn't just the hair that was growing. It was something else growing. In the grey matter, there was the realisation that nothing else matters but what belongs to God. He couldn't see Philistine girls anymore. He didn't have any eyes. So when you come down to verse 27 and they brought him out to play sport with him, and you get a picture sometimes, don't you, of of Samson being led out by a little boy, No, the lad here is not a little boy. He's the master of ceremonies who would bring out Samson and slap him on the face and dig him in the ribs with his elbow and kick him in the groin. So the audience would laugh, thousands of them, in the tears of that temple. Until it got to the point where Samson was exhausted. And he says in verse 26, suffer me, that I may feel the pillars we're on the house standard, that I may lead upon. He's finished. He doesn't have any physical strength left. But he's got spiritual strength. And verse 27 says, Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And there were upon the roof three thousand men and women. You know, if this had been Ten years before, and Samson was here, and he wasn't in chains, his eyes would have been going around the room, picking out all the pretty Philistine girls. But now he can't see them. Men and women are the same to him now. They're all his enemies. They're the serpent. And so he appeals to his God. He acknowledges that he deserves to die with the Philistines in verse 30. Let me die with the Philistines. He sought vengeance for only one eye, verse 28. That's how it's rendered by the RSV. When it says there, that I may be at once avenged for my two eyes. The RSV has for one of my two eyes. He knew he deserved to be crippled. And he only wanted one eye. And he slew more Philistines in his death than he did in his life. The record says in verse 30 at the end. And where does he end up, brethren and sisters? Well, this is fascinating. He ends up being buried between Zorah and Ishtael. Read verse 31. And his brethren and all the house of his father came down and took him up and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the burying place of Manoah, his father. And he judged Israel 20 years in the burial place of Manoah, his father. Now, Manoah means rest. The root signifies a resting place, a state or condition of rest. So here's the man who began life as a teenager, being impelled to and fro like this. He was troubled throughout his life. But now, brethren and sisters, he's still, he's dead. He's at rest. That activity is finished. He's waiting for the resurrection. And what, what is it that has been the power of his life in the moment of his death? It says he is buried in the burying place of Manoah, his father. And we are told in chapter 13, verse 2, that Manoah was a man of Zorah. So yes, he was buried between those two towns. But to which was he closer in death? Zora. And finally, the spirit was victorious in the life of Samson. May it be, brethren and sisters, as we endeavour to apply the principles of Nazariteship in our life and experience the failures sometimes that Samson experienced. May it be that finally we might be with him in Sora, the Spirit having prevailed.